Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you again this week. Joining me as always are my co-hosts, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, Scott. What is up? How are you? <laughs> Not much. Drinking an import, <laughs> watching the game. Hearing those old Bud Light. What's up, <laughs> and also Bailey Perkins. Hello, uh, excuse me, Bailey Perkins, right? Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. Uh, you know, years of calling you one name, I've not yet made the adjustment, and I apologize. That's okay. I, I kept the both last names on purpose. Right. We all know who it is. <laughs> Generally, if you just say Bailey, everyone knows who you're talking about, I think. No. Just say BPW, and it rolls right off the tongue. Just <laughs> right? I love all the above. I'm here for it. Hey, just to, hey, let's bring in BPW. She's right here. What's up, girl? How you doing? BP dubs. Well, uh, this week, we're going to talk about a few things uh, some just bear a mention and then some bear some discussion i think uh let's start by uh formally now uh saying that the director of the department of veterans affairs joel kinsel has is entering the governor's race we talked about this a few weeks ago maybe a month ago because there was uh some rumors uh, that he was going to enter the race but it was in the news because he had made, I don't know if it's actually an allegation, but had said, hey, uh, it appears that someone's been accessing our computers unlawfully or uh, without authorization in the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. And he wondered if it might be someone from the governor's office because it was around the same time that he said then rumors would have been circulating that I might enter the governor's race. And everyone's like, so are you? And he's like, I'm not saying any. He just kind of sidestepped it. And now, of course, he's in the race. I mean, I guess he just didn't want to didn't want to blow his uh, his grand announcement back then. But uh, Bailey, do you think this changes the landscape of the governor's race at all? I don't think so, only because he doesn't have the name ID um, outside of the recent allegations of you know the tamperings and even that didn't get a whole lot of coverage like those who are in you know the political space and and follow local news and are the ones you know who would be aware of who he is and what he's done and so um, at this point especially because we're under three months away from or about three months away from the primary election he has a lot of work to do to not only raise the funds to ensure that he can reach voters across the state, um, but also um, do what needs to be done to differentiate himself among the base, which feels further right <laughs> for, for this primary. And so I'm not sure that um, his presence will be a threat to the incumbent governor step. Yeah, I mean, like this is a guy. So he's he's the executive director of the VA here in Oklahoma. He's been the uh, Senate parliamentarian, right? Like he was the uh, parliamentarian uh, for the Oklahoma House, the Oklahoma House for like twelve years, um, which is a which is a um, you know an important an important role. So he's been in the political world. He has political. Uh, you know, political connections. I would assume from his time in the House, he's a lieutenant colonel in the National Guard, working in the in the JAG Corps. Um, you know, he's he's a guy who who 
you know, you'd think would be someone who could mount perhaps a, a formidable campaign, um, except for it's like, like you said, Bailey, like three months before the primary, right? Like, are you gonna are you gonna unseat an incumbent governor um, with three months to raise money to get your get your name ID up? This is a guy that like maybe if he maybe if he announced a year ago, there might be this might be a more of a of a serious shot. But I I think you're right. I don't think he poses a threat to Governor Stitt in the next three months. Um, you know, it is interesting. <laughs> the Oklahoman in their article that's talking about him says he did. In his announcement, he did not detail any policy priorities, nor are there any listed on his campaign website. Uh, I just went to his campaign website, and that is true. Um, he he does say, uh, really, the only thing in the in the news section is his uh, is his announcement where he describes himself as a Ronald Reagan conservative. Um, I don't know that Ronald Reagan would get elected in today's Republican Party. I could be wrong. Um, and what that signals to me, Scott, is that he considers himself more of a moderate Republican or like a fiscal conservative. And to your point, um, especially as we read the headlines in the news, the Republican base feels more pressed on, especially like the social conservative issues. So I don't right. know how that helps him. And he, you know, and he comes out and he says the state administration this is a quote, by the way. The state administration is rife with corruption, self-dealing, and cronyism, and Oklahomans deserve another choice. I mean, yes, agree. You are you are correct on all points, but like, um, I think you I think you need more than that, particularly three months before the election. So the day after his announcement, um, he I guess his announcement was yesterday, and then today he had a press conference, and in that press conference he, um said some of the same things, right? Like he referred to Kevin Stitt as corrupt and as it relates to quote boards, buddies and back rooms, like kind of hitting on that same thing. And um, I don't remember if this is from the release, his press release when he announced, I think it might've been, but he said um, to Kevin Stitt, Oklahoma's tourism industry is just another opportunity to stick his hand into the barbecue pit. <laughs> it's just, I don't even know what that means. Like, at first, I, I pictured grabbing the barbecue or the sauce, but then I was like, that also sounds like you would get burned. And so it was like a, a funny analogy to me. But it's definitely a play and a dig at the controversy with Swadley. So. Right. No, yeah. I mean, I get it. It's also makes me wonder if there's deeper connections to the Swadley's deal that we don't yet know about, right? Um, I know there's a criminal investigation, and certainly people have identified lieutenant governor matt pinnell as you know being the kind of tourism guy and his potential connection to it i hadn't heard governor stitz and maybe it's just that kinsel's trying to you know tag anything he can to his opponent he also and this is from trey savage from non-doc had story and had tweeted this press conference he said uh earlier today kinsel just delivered this one-liner oklahoma is not a poor state oklahoma is a poorly managed state which is um Interesting because, and Trace points this out, that was a line from Gary Richardson, who was a candidate for governor back in 2018. And then I think even back then, then Stitt adopted it as his campaign, one of his kind of slogans uh, during the race. I mean, it's one of those perennial lines that if you're running, you're going to say it's poorly managed because I don't like the manager that I'm trying to you know unseat. So here's a question for you guys, and it's related to this. And, and it's, uh, so I've been thinking about this for a few days. 
So I have seen, um, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with uh, Oklahoma Progress Now, right, on Twitter, um, and several of the listeners may be as well. They have had, uh, they've had a, a tweet or some versions of a tweet for the last couple of weeks, um, basically highlighting the fact that, like, Governor Stitt said, like, top 10, top 10, and we're basically still bottom 10 or last and all the things that the governor listed as where we need to be top 10 in his first campaign, right? Um why is that a message that is not being hammered home by like everyone? Why are there not like <laughs> right? Like why I don't like I haven't like the only place I have seen that is on Twitter from Oklahoma Progress now. Like well, I haven't in- seen that from the Hopmeister campaign. I haven't seen it from any of his primary opponents. Like to me, I mean as a as an outside political armchair watcher quarterback person, right? To me. His whole signature, like the thrust of his campaign was top 10, top 10, top 10, top 10, right? We should be a top 10 state, Oklahoma turnaround. The governor set the metric by which his administration should be managed, right? Like, no, like he is the one who said we should be top 10 in all these things. I'm the one to get us there. Like, how is this not turning into a referendum on the fact that he hasn't done any of it, even in the primary? Right. Like if you want, like, I'm like, like forget the Hoffmeister campaign. Even if you want to beat the governor in the primary, why is every single opponent not hammering home that he's done nothing that he said he would? Because electability matters. Right. And we are also less than three months away from a time when people who could have been um, competitive candidates could prepare the messaging, could raise the money, et cetera, to be able to drive home those points. But I don't think there is anybody in the race who has the um, the the reach and definitely, you know, raise the funds to be able to echo those target messages. And who knows what's going to happen, you know, after June. Maybe that could be a a strategy for the Hoffmeister campaign. But I will say one of the things that's typical in elections, if you have to talk about your opponent, oftentimes you've lost, right? Because Kevin Stitt's not going to be talking about Kinsel. He's not going to be talking about Yen. He's not going to be talking about anybody else, right? But they have to talk about him, which brings more attention to the governor. But then also you have to think about your messengers, right? In this primary, convincing people that Oklahoma is in the bottom 10 and not the top 10 is not what's going to change the minds of the base, right? They care about did abortion policy get done? And he can say, I signed that, right? He can say, I stood up for women's rights with the transgender bill that he signed into law. He can say that he stood up to the Biden administration's vaccine requirements. Those are the things that get his base riled up and not necessarily the outcomes of where Oklahoma, as, as, as although, you know, we wish those are the things that, that really mattered in the political discourse, they unfortunately aren't. And so, That's the tough part, too, is, you know, we're not thinking about the entire electorate for the state of Oklahoma. We're thinking about who are going to show up to the polls in June. 
and the way that things have twisted and turned within the Oklahoma Republican Party, there are a lot of far right folks who have been um, activated and engaged in a different way than we've seen in years prior. And I know we'll get into the conversation about, you know, the elected officials who are, you know, hanging their hats and going home. Um, but it's a reflection of the, the changing climate, even among those on the right. So I, I'd say that even though that is something critical to live, maybe in the general, it's it's not the messaging point that's going to move people in the primary to not vote for Kevin Stitt. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Bailey. Uh, and it, I think Governor Stitt was wise, or his campaign team was wise, to not articulate specific areas to be topped in. He's always just said, we want to be a top 10 state. And then he highlights the areas where we happen to be topped in or become topped in by something. Now, many people can point to all the many ways and arguably ways that really matter, right? That we are bottom 10, right? Health outcomes, life expectancy, infant mortality, you know, all these things. Uh, we are top 10 in bad things, right? Like female incarceration, incarceration in general, uh, you know, STDs, child or teenage pregnancy, like all kinds of bad metrics. But he doesn't talk about those, right? And it's, we can, you know, his opponents can highlight the ways that we're bottom. But as you said, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough way to win over people, right? If you're just complaining about our state the whole time, it's it, people begin to associate you with a bit of a depressing story. And, and I think there's um, certainly a, a, an avenue to build a more positive campaign around making Oklahoma a, a shining city on a hill among the country, right? Like there is a, a way to do it. Maybe, maybe Kinsel will do that with his affinity for Reagan and steal some of those, uh, those phrases, but I guess we'll find out. Um, and, and I also think, and I don't, you may have said this in there and I forgive me, but um, I don't know that those messages work. Maybe everyone's poll tested them and they just don't work particularly with like the persuasion audience or a universe that they're trying to target, right? I mean, Who we have a democratic president in office, right? And every time there is, that always creates breeding grounds for anti whatever the administration may be for, right? So that creates grounds for we need to protect our education system from being woke, right? Like we're gonna, you know, protect our people from these bad policies that are coming down from Washington. I mean, regardless of whether there's truth or not to them, those are the things that people believe. And those are the messaging points that they get to run on, even though they may have like the least bit of depth ever and, you know, no, no ties to truth, but that's what people believe. And if that's the messaging point, then that that's that's going to be tough to fight whoever is running against the governor. Right. But I think, I mean, you guys, you guys are both right. I mean, the, the answer is the, the short answer is yes, you guys hit the nail on the head. That's what's that's what's going on. But I guess I think my frustration is from a from a forget like a policy standpoint, right? Like from a campaign standpoint, you know, Bailey, I think what, what you're saying is exactly what the stick campaign wants to do, right? Because the stick campaign wants this to be a choice, right? You want the choice. Do you, they want a choice between 
vote for Kevin Stitt, who's for freedom in America and the, you know, yada, 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 right. Or vote for Biden, who's for critical race theory and, you know, illegal immigration and socialism and all these things. But that's, that's what the Stitt wants. The Stitt campaign wants this to be a choice, right? But if you want to win, it needs to be a referendum, right? Like elections with an incumbent can either be a choice or they can be a referendum, right? And if it's a referendum, that is the ground that the challenging campaign, in my opinion, should want to play on. And so it seems like anybody, and, and you know, obviously like the the candidates who have two months left in the, you know, two, two months until primary and, they just, and they've just announced it, it, you know, they, they're not the ones to do that. But once we get into the general, I feel like if you are the Hoffmeister campaign, every single bit of your time and attention and dollars needs to make this an election focused on Kevin Stitt, right? His own spokeswoman said, in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing, right? Explain why under Kevin Stitt, we're bottom 10 in education. Explain why under Kevin Stitt, we're at the bottom of healthcare outcomes. Explain why under Kevin Stitt, we have more people on Medicaid than ever before. Explain why under Kevin Stitt, the uh, 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 economy is 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 the way it is. You know, ex- make Kevin Stitt explain why inflation is so friggin' high, right? Like, like make it a referendum on the Stitt campaign. Don't don't. I guess what I'm saying is don't agree. Like, don't agree to play on the choice grounds, right? Don't agree to play on the critical race theory territory and the illegal immigration territory. Don't even answer those attacks because one like you said Bailey they're not true right like first and foremost they're not true but two don't seed the ground make it about Kevin Stitt and his four years of gov- as governor of Oklahoma because I think you know I think he's I think he's beatable but the way that he's beatable is to make it about him not about the choice that's my referendum not a choice <laughs> That's probably a good transition um, to talk about uh, the local elections that happened this last week. Um, I think the stuff that got the top headlines, right, is school board races, particularly in places that are suburbs, right? So Oklahoma City Public Schools, sure, I think Tulsa as well, but then um, Edmond, uh, Oakdale, schools like that, where I think on by and large, the far-right candidates that were running lost to more moderate candidates. I'm not everywhere, but I think... definitely true for Norman and Edmund, for sure. Yeah, and Oakdale and someone I know was watching those. Um, and I think in Tulsa, it was kind of a split. Um, and obviously, there were school board races all across the state. And There's about 73 races that happened that day. Yeah, I don't have time to research all of these people. Um, <laughs> and uh, I concerned about the districts where I live and my kids go to school, um, for the most part. And then um, and then the mayor of Norman was a runoff, right? So they had the general election in February, and um, mayoral races are nonpartisan. And so there's like a, there's not a primary for them. Everyone just runs. And if no one gets the majority, then there's a runoff. And that's what happened. Uh, and so incumbent mayor, Brea Clark, lost her reelection bid to um i don't want to mispronounce his name larry La- helka helka helica helica something like that anyway uh who i guess has been pretty well known in norman um he was not the farthest right candidate in the race those people lost in the original in the general right uh, and so it came down to these two and uh you know i would say somewhat close not entirely i think he won with 53 or 54% of the vote so it wasn't exactly a nail biter. And 
you know, uh, Bailey, there's there's been a lot of uh, a lot of armchair campaign managers like Scott self-identified um, on Twitter in particular of, of giving their take on this. Yeah. Lots of people have said, "Oh well, this is a this is a referendum on her," or this is because there was um, other co-occurring things on the ballot, like the there was an infrastructure bond issue. I think for the city, it was going to raise taxes essentially. Um, that there was definitely controversy about building a homeless shelter yeah. that would be built by the city. Um, just a lot of really, and then of course, this was a rare election that had state involvement into a local race. So, like, even um, the governor was campaigning for um, Bria Clark's opponents, right? And that's a rarity in in local races in that way. And so, um, and then even just the history of norm, I would say recent history with um, the growing presence of like Unite Norman and some of the other efforts that have been made over time. Um, they weren't successful in capturing, you know, a lot of seats on, this, on that city council. I think they have two seats, um, but they were able to push enough people to um, vote out the incumbent um, mayor that was viewed as progressive. And then, you know, Andy, you mentioned um, the different takes from, you know, the, the armchair analysts and, and, you know, campaign folks on, on Twitter. Um, one um, analysis that I read was people saying that she misread Norman, right? That Norman wasn't as progressive as people frame it to be, especially because there are parts of Norman that have, you know, strong um, conservatism. Like, I mean, Senator Stanridge represents Norman and he's one of the most conservative lawmakers, right? And so um, there is a growing mix of people in that area. Also, I mean, she was a mayor during a global pandemic that was controversial. You had this movement of far rights brewing in this kind of take back our community. There's also um, people who are saying that the conversations related to like defunding the police and how Norman had, you know, reduced police budgets over time was something that angered um, some residents. And so um, there were just so many different factors in play in that race that it's hard to just pin it on one thing that led to um, the incumbent losing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. So it's, it's politics is nuanced, right? Which I think we try to illustrate on this program <laughs> um, that it's not like there was a huge scandal and that's why she lost. It's like, well, she was a, a mayor during a very difficult four years in a town that is in a, a perpetually in transition. Right. And uh, is a mix of, strongly opinionated folks on all sides of the political spectrum, right? From uh, Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and everybody in between, independents. Uh, and so- And she was always open about the sexism that she faced yeah, in her yeah. role as a mayor who was very vocal on different issues. Like um, she shared on, on Twitter about how 
like days before the campaign, there were these signs up that said vote for Tits McGee or whatever. And um, she would get nasty um, letters and emails that, you know, had foul language at her and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, that's not, you know, new to politics or any politician. I'm sure many of them you know, receive, you know, some forms of, of hate mail or whatever, but it was certainly magnified for the amount of attention that was on um, the city of Norman and how um, its community has been politicized, mm-hmm. especially over the past couple of years. Yeah. No, and I think it's easy because it's a university town. It's close to Oklahoma City. It is often viewed, right or wrong, as like a blue dot in a red sea, right? That's not entirely accurate, but all of these things go together and and yeah i mean i think we've all talked to enough um uh talked to enough female elected officials from both parties to know that they get a ton of incredibly inappropriate offensive hurtful and dangerous right um messages from random people right and that's not okay <laughs> by by any stretch of imagination well, uh, and since we're talking about sexism, I guess, and like the role of uh, or the different experience that female candidates for high office have, we should mention that there's a new Supreme Court justice for the United States. Uh, this is the this is the third one we've mentioned on this podcast since we started doing it a few years ago, right, Scott? Wow, yeah. I, I Kavanaugh and four. Amy Coney Barrett. Four. Oh, four. Uh, so yeah, I guess so. Oh yeah. yeah, there's um it's been an eventful few years I'm <laughs> doing saying, this podcast. Right? <laughs> and we don't often talk about Washington DC and federal stuff because it's far away and we want to highlight things that are happening close to home. But this is uh momentous in all kinds of ways. It's the first black woman that's ever been on the Supreme Court. Um for the first time in the Supreme Court's history, the majority of justices are not white men. Right. There's um, and this is not partisanship involved, but a combination of, of justices um, are, are not white men. And certainly Justice Kentaji Brown Jackson's path to nomination was, ex- I don't know, exactly what everyone expected it to be. Right. Like I watched some of her confirmation hearing, which I felt was somewhat unnecessary. We all knew how the votes were going to come down. It's not like that was uncovering in the information that that senators didn't already have uh and you know ted cruz with his like cartoons he had up there and it was just comical except not funny uh and i just kept watching her face and like looking at courage and uh and determination for her to get to that place and then to stand there and have to endure that i can't i honestly cannot imagine yeah, it was definitely a, a moment of mixed emotions, right? Like, it's exciting that um, we've reached this time in history that's long overdue because there are so many qualified Black women in the legal profession, right? Uh, she was beyond qualified, and she brings a unique lens to the, the uh, judicial system and on the Supreme Court because of her background, right? And so there's just a number of reasons why her nomination 
and her confirmation are so significant in this season. Her point of view is something that had been lacking on the Supreme Court um, that will be important um, when looking at decisions that are made by um, the highest court in the land, right? When the Supreme Court makes a decision, that's it, right? Until they decide to take up the issue again, maybe, you know, decades later oftentimes, but um, it's just such an important role. But the thing was heartbreaking for me as a Black woman, and I'm sure other people felt the same way, was that she was so qualified. And there were senators who recognized how qualified she was and said, I cannot vote for her. And that's such a common experience for Black women that felt almost traumatizing to watch in this space, right? To have one of the most coveted roles in our governmental system and one of the most important ones, and for someone to be potentially denied because of politics or whatever factors you want to call it. Um, and it just also pushes back against the argument because there were people who were upset that Biden said, I want to make sure that there's a Black woman on the court, right? That was one of his campaign promises. And people were like, we should have a person, you know, who's who's qualified. And this woman is clearly that, right? She is, she meets every definition and checks all the boxes of, of what a Supreme Court justice should be. And yet there were folks who, even someone, um, you know, who, who shares her cultural background still denied this qualified person um, because of, you know, whatever political views. But it was really amazing to see that there were at least three Republican senators who decided to, to have the lens of an American and, and make that choice to say, this person is qualified. There's no reason why that they shouldn't be on the court. And so that was definitely a beautiful thing to see. The only thing that I'll add to this is just, is just to say that, I mean, one, the, you know, the attacks on her were just, um, just ridiculous and, and absurd. I don't know how long it's going to take before, you know, someone calls Joy Hoffmeister a pedophile or says she's pro-pedophiles. Um, you know, but the 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 attacks on Justice Jackson were were just ridiculous. Now there are those who would say, th there are those who would say that that the uh, the attacks, if you if you want to call it that word, um, on Justice Kavanaugh were 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 equally absurd. And I'm, I'm not here to relitigate Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation, um, but but even setting aside setting aside the nature and the validity of their uh of, of the kind of challenges that were put to them during the not during the hearings the like grace with which she handled herself um compared to justice kavanaugh screaming at members of the committee acting like he was going to break down in tears you know about how much he like you know i like beer and that like script i mean it was just like you know the but guy, Scott, I if mean, you want to be real about the intersections of the experiences of white men versus black women in this country, we always have to take the high road. We There is no space for us to show weakness, especially in a moment like being confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. So 
that's a common experience that so many black women relate to on a day-to-day basis. Cause at the end of the day, we don't get grace. We don't get the opportunity to have those human feelings, right? To be frustrated when you know that you're being asked something that feels ridiculous and demeaning or whatever. Like it's exhausting having to always take the high road, but we, but we, but we do it. I, I, I don't doubt it at all. I, I only bring it up to say it was, uh, it's a, it's a testament to her, like the, I think the her, her like character and strength to be able to, to do that. And as you mentioned, Bailey, I have no doubt that, uh, that's strength that comes from decades of practice, unfortunately. Well, and hopefully we'll get to a point in our country where we truly reach equity, right? To where Black women or anyone for that matter, you know, from anyone who represents any type of um, underrepresented community, that they won't have to face that, that they'll be able to experience being human or on the other side, not being asked things or being challenged in ways that question their humanity, right? So I, you know, I, I really hope, cause I was thinking about, you know, what my bonus daughter and what my niece are gonna be able to see going forward. And I wonder what their grandchildren's experience is gonna be, but all of those things are decided upon what we do today. You know what I mean? So I, I hope that we get to a point where black women don't have to take the high road and don't have to have this high character to take on the weight of things that other people don't have to do. Well, uh, the appointment or the confirmation of Justice Brown Jackson does not change the partisan makeup of the high court um, because she was replacing a democratically appointed and and democratically leaning, or I will say a liberal justice. Um, and that's somewhat important because it's broadly expected that the Supreme Court will hear a case later this year that could potentially overturn uh, or undermine Roe versus Wade and, and not necessarily outlaw abortion federally, but like not, I would say, re- revoke protection uh, or a a constitutional right to abortion that currently exists under the law. Uh, And so states like Oklahoma, of course, are passing a whole new slew of abortion-related bills, as they do almost every year. Um, Most notably this week is that Oklahoma um, passed Senate Bill 612, um, which uh, passed, you know, very broadly 70 to 14 um, from the House, which, of course, is not the whole House. There were like 16 members who didn't vote or something. But not only that, Andy, it literally had no debate. It passed so quickly. That's part of the rage for not even what the bill does, but how it was just quickly moved through. Someone said it was like a minute and 34 seconds or something like, Mm -hmm. like literally that fast of how they passed one of the most sweeping and um, harmful and um, damaging abortion legislations in the country, like worse than some of the things passed in other states. Yeah, and so this bill would uh, essentially, uh, it's, I mean, it's the 
NPR, I think most headlines, New York Times, Washington Post all said like Oklahoma's vote to ban most abortions comes, you know, at a at a key moment for reproductive rights or the Times headline says Oklahoma lawmakers approve near total ban on abortion. Um, CNN's headline, USA Today, all these say like almost the exact same thing. And it criminalizes the person who decides to use that medical tool on like conception. So like you could have a felony for using this medical procedure, right? It's going to be dangerous for a lot of women. Felony, a fine up to $100,000 or a maximum of 10 years in prison. And it punishes the doctors yes. <laughs> who do the procedure too. So I, that just makes me worried because we've already been talking about since the pandemic ensued, the shortage in our medical workforce, right? Especially nurses and in other positions. And I do wonder, is this going to deter people from wanting to come practice in Oklahoma? Like, is this ultimately going to hurt our overall health yeah. infrastructure, right? I mean, yeah, it's a slippery slope, right? If we start um, criminalizing, you know, physicians for providing medical care for this, there are undoubtedly other things that we will expect to see, right? I would expect in, in subsequent years, we'll see similar bills proposed that would criminalize um, sexual reassignment surgery, um, you know, anything like that, treating transgender Contra patients, all, yeah, contraception. contraception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not a good place to be in. Healthcare should be left to, you know, um, doctors and patients, not, not, uh, not, the government, um, you know, um, I did want to say we mentioned the, the the case Andy Dobbs, um, which is the case that that many folks uh, think is going to be the the vehicle for the court to overturn Roe. Um, they actually they they heard the case in December, so it was argued in December, um, and it will decision will be handed down by June of this year. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes cases like this um, that are that are you know. Have, have potentially huge implications and are being closely watched, the decision gets announced. It's one of the last decisions that will be announced uh, before the, the term closes. So uh, I would expect that in June. Yeah. So the Oklahoma session ends in May and then everyone thinks that they're safe. And then the SCOTUS ruling comes out in June. Well, um, it is this, I, I think what was most notable for me about this bill is how far and wide the headlines reached in national and international press. Um, that is not always the case for Oklahoma. And sadly, though, it does seem like we make we make the news for not great reasons, right? So and even the vice president of the United States tweeted about Oklahoma's legislation. So yeah, yeah the, the world is talking about Oklahoma once again. I think before we, we, we can kind of wind down with... Um, revisiting something that had come up in the past. Uh, in fact, a guest we've had on the show, former Attorney General Mike Hunter, was in the news again this week. Uh, Nondoc had the story, and this is a, what a tangled web we weave, is what I kept thinking of with this story. It sounds like, if and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I'll try to lay it out there and we can talk about it, that when, um, when General Hunter was in office, he, as we all know, prosecuted the... Um, Purdue Pharma people, um, and uh, and he, and I think that's why Scott, you and I interviewed him, right? We went to his office to talk about that 
to and to talk about the settlement specifically. The settlement, right? Right. So he in the process of doing that, he hired some outside law firms, right? Some outside counsel. And they, you know, they made lots of money on the deal. It's an expensive case. And so some of the settlement funds go to pay those private law firms. And then around the same time, uh, the representative Terry O'Donnell had filed a bill related to how the state can contract with private law firms. And that bill included like a bidding process and a bunch of transparency clauses. And allegedly, Attorney General Hunter really pushed back and and said, you know, like, we can't hear this bill, talk to committee chairs, try to talk to O'Donnell, you know, to like basically get it kiboshed. And somewhere, like, uh, General Hunter allegedly threatened, uh, I don't think directly, but threatened indirectly, um, Representative O'Donnell saying, you know, he's running this, Representative O'Donnell is running this bill that would allow legislators, spouses to own tag agencies, and like, he should be investigated for that because that's not okay. Now, we now know, you know, that Representative O'Donnell's wife inherited a tag agency, and and he stepped down from his position and there was kind of a mini scandal over there. And so it sounds like what we didn't see behind the scenes a year ago or two years ago was this kind of inside political game of trying to protect his own situation. And we don't yet know about general Hunter's relationship with those other law firms or what that looks like. But I, it was one of those things where I was like, Oh man, this smells bad smells fishy something about this is not at least me is not what oklahomans want their government to be like it's like the it's like the house of cards thing that we hope is not real but it seems i mean nobody died that we know of but like it still is just a little sketchy sketch yeah it's 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 uh it's you know people say when there's smoke there's fire that's not always true but it's true a lot um and and this is you know this is the kind of I don't know. It's, it's the, I don't know. And, and, you know, the attorney general is not in office anymore. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how much we need to like belabor it, but this is the kind of thing that you like imagine happens and you hope it doesn't happen. Then you find out that it does happen and you're just like, Oh man. (laughs) Right. Like, well, and the other thing is that it sounds like general Hunter, like pressured, speaker charles mccall who is one of o'donnell's closest friends like they share an apartment here in the city when they're in session right like they're roommates and so and o'donnell was basically second in command in the house and so for hunter to go to the speaker about this bill is like uh, i don't know if it's it's not unprecedented but like it's pretty unusual for the ag to get that involved in legislative stuff um it's just very interesting kind of seeing some of how that um inside game happened well i mean as we're learning um there is a lot of pressures that lawmakers face um and and just people not even just you know the house and senators but even other areas of elective office that are pushing people away from public service because these things are becoming so contentious to the point where you have people who would traditionally, you know, 
continue running for office and stay in office at least until they term out or they're, you know, booted out by, you know, somebody running against them. But we're having some folks who are self-selecting themselves out of the process. Yeah, you know, back in 2016 or 2017, we had a bunch of lawmakers that left office involuntarily, right? There were some scandals, people kind of resigned. I guess it was voluntary, but it was under duress, right? Like um, Kyle Loveless resigned. Um, that's when uh, the guy up in the northwest part of the state had the Uber in- assault incident. Uh, um, Bar- Marlette. Yes. Bryce right, Marlette. Marlette. Yeah, Ralph Shorty. There were so many. Oof, yeah, it was it was a bad that was a bad year. And I think we lost, I don't know, seven or eight lawmakers and some of them during session, right? Like some of them resigned to take other positions, Scott Martin. And uh, some sadly passed away. That someone died. Right? Yeah. It was, it was a Brumball passed away that year. Yeah. That's right. So right now we know, in fact, let me find my, I'm sort of making a list of these, um, but there's been a bunch of lawmakers who have announced that they're just not going to seek reelection. There's a couple in Tulsa. There's one from Norman and, yeah, so the ones that we know about, I think all of these are confirmed. One of them might be uh, a widely rumored, but uh, Representative Marilyn Bell from Norman, who we had on the show just a few weeks ago, uh, Representative Denise Brewer, um, Carol Bush from Tulsa, Sheila Dills from Tulsa. Senator Lee Wright. Lee Wright. Representative Mize, I heard today, may not be seeking re-election. Um, really? Zach, Zach Taylor, yeah. Howard. Um, so that's, that's a bunch that are, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So seven that we know of, and I suspect there will be others. Um, now some of them, you know, I, from what I understand, some of them have felt unsupported by their base, right? So a lot of these Republicans, um, and so some of them are just, are, are facing challengers from the far right. Um, people like uh, Sheila Dills, she wasn't scheduled to term out until 2030. She's only been in the office, I guess, like four years, right? And so I think she, from what I've kind of pieced together or heard, I think she's just over it, right? And that's that means, right, that the fringe on both sides and this highly partisan environment we have is driving away legislators and it's probably not driving away the ones that you hope it will right like it ends up driving away the ones that just want to like do their jobs well yes right who just don't want to be so contentious so this is going to open it up now we're only a well just a few days in fact listeners if you're listening to this on the 12th 13th i guess it's 13th through 15th is filing so if you listen to this on the 13th of april or later candidate finally is happening that means that some people who have not thought about it yet are at home this weekend talking to their families about well should i run starting next week for some of these seats some of them already have folks that were maybe lined up right like i know um and marilyn bell's district um annie Minns is running down there and there's been a few people we've kind of heard you know that are that are announcing but this will be a big change um, perhaps a, a tumultuous time for some of these districts in an election year, you know, going into the next legislature. And for places like Tulsa, I mean, there's a it's a lot of turnover for representation up there. And then if, when you compound that with, you know, people uh, like uh, Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen and folks that are running for higher office, you may have new representation at the federal level 
you have a new you have a new senator, you got a new congressman, you've got uh, you know new House and Senate at the state level. That's a lot of change. And it's a rare time for us to have this many elections in a midterm year, right? For us to be electing two U.S. senators, all of our statewide offices, um, all of the House of Representatives with several open seats, right? There's going to be a significant number of people running in the Senate. And, and so you're right, Andy, this is going to be a very unique time for our state overall, but it's also going to be a rich opportunity for voters um, to really have a say, especially because with the number of open seats, you have an opportunity to really choose who's going to represent your community. That's exactly right. Now, listeners, if you are at all contemplating running for office, you have just a few days to consider that. And filing is next week. As we said, it's April 13th through 15th, I believe. Um, there'll be a few on the 13th and a few more on the 14th and then a big dump of them on the 15th, right? That's everyone kind of goes in. It's cool to see pictures. It's just like people turning in paperwork and it feels like a very momentous deal. Many of them will send a surrogate, right? So like Congress people often have someone from their staff that end up being the ones to turn in the documents. You don't have to go in person. Although I feel like it'd be fun to go if it was me, I would go. Um, but I guess if you're going to take a vote on the Hill, it's tough to come home on a Wednesday, right? So uh, next week in our next episode, we'll talk about that. If there's any surprises of other folks who don't file for re-election and just haven't announced it yet, right? Um, or people who we didn't expect to get in the race. We might see that. I There's always lots of, you know, lots of uh, side text messages and private chats of people that are sharing rumors. And I, at this point, don't care about rumors. I'm just waiting for next week. We'll find out who files. I just want to say again for the record, at this time, I'm not a candidate for either Senate seat in Oklahoma. <laughs> in case you decide to <laughs> raise several million dollars over the weekend. <laughs> all right, that right. should have been our April Fool's joke that we were all running, right? Right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> for the same seat. We're going to fight it out, the three of us. That would be fun. That's a good campaign. All right, well, uh, listeners, stay tuned for that next week. Also, mark your calendars to exciting events coming up this year that I can tell you about today. One is CivicsCon is happening again this year. It will be June 10th and 11th at the Sarkis Energy Center in Norman. That's right there by the OU campus. Um, you can go to civicscon.com for more information. Um, this year's uh, a, a great theme. The theme is designing stronger communities. Um, it's really, the theme is geocivics, tag designing stronger communities. Uh, it's a regional conference that will provide um, attendees and we're kind of targeting educators in many ways. So if you're an educator or know someone who is, tell them about this. Uh, it's an opportunity to discover and explore the open source tools and resources available to support student learning in geography, science, math, critical thinking, problem solving. We'll talk to experts in the field to help design strategies and utilize the tools in their classrooms. Um, this is a partnership with Generation Citizen and a whole bunch of other organizations um, who you can see on the CivicsCon website. I need to add their logos, but I'll do that this weekend um, and see all of our partners on there. If you would like to sponsor CivicsCon, please reach out to me. Um, in fact, there's a link on the CivicsCon website or you can just email me at podcast at letsfixthis.org. Um, 
that would be a tremendous thing. And you can register to go. It would be great. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Secondly, also mark your calendars for November 8th. Um, that's a Tuesday. That's election day. Put two things on your calendar for that date. Scott has his phone in his hand. Undoubtedly, he's putting this into his phone right as we speak. The first thing is to vote. You can always vote early. You can vote by mail, which I recommend. If you want to go in person, November 8th is the best day to go. Well, and when you register to vote by mail, you'll get not only that ballot, but you'll get the rest of the ballots for every election this calendar year. That's so right. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it today and get the primary ballot, all that stuff. You can vote by mail. I do it every time, and it's uh, it's quite a bit of fun. Um, I've even got, I ordered some I Voted stickers from Amazon. If you need one, I'll mail one to you so you can have a sticker on election day. Anyway, mark your calendars November 8th to vote. And secondly, that night, then come to the Tower Theater in Oklahoma City at 6 o'clock for the election night show. That's right. We're doing it again, folks. I booked it this week. We're going to do the election night show again. If you came in 2018, it was a rousing good time. Uh, it was just me and Scott and 700 of our closest friends and family who were there. And we basically did the Tonight Show format for four hours. I think we'll scale it back a little bit, but it was a really good time. There'll be there'll be music, there'll be food, there'll be election results. It is honestly the best election results watch party that you can imagine here in Oklahoma City. We should get a clown. In fact, this abs- no veto, no clowns, <laughs> no clowns. Uh, how you know? Last time, uh, last time we did the show, Tower Theater. Uh, one of our featured guests was uh, State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister. That's uh, right. She gave our top 10 list. I, I, I wonder if she'll stop by this year. I have a feeling she will not, but uh, hey, we know, could ask. We can ask. I mean, maybe she'll come do another top 10 list. We'll have to. She should. It wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at that point, the polls are closed and it would not, not be considered electioneering. So um, well, we'll have to. We're still working out the details of the exact schedule, but just go ahead and put it in your calendar. The Election Night Show, November 8th, 2022, Tower Theater. All right. On that note, this brings us to the end of the episode. Listeners, thanks for being here. Scott, thanks for being here. Thank you. Bailey, thanks for being here. Of course. Friends and listeners, we appreciate you. If you would like to support us at Let's Fix This for doing this, you know, I don't make this ask nearly as often as my board would like me to. Scott, since you're the chair of the board, I... Uh, I'm doing this for you. Um, actually, I'm doing it for me. I'm the one that gets paid here. <laughs> but if you'd like to support Let's Fix This, we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. Your donations are tax deductible, uh, not only due to this podcast, um, but we convene a, a, a table of organizations doing civic engagement work. We are helping um, promote civic engagement throughout the state. Uh, and we would love to be able to scale up our efforts in exciting ways. So go to letsfixthis.org. There's a big donate button in the corner. Click that. Throw us a few pennies uh, or a few hundred bucks would be absolutely tremendous. I will mail you a sticker as a thank you. Maybe even a lapel pin. I've got some of those in storage. All right. Thanks for that. Remember that decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week.